fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? You help to unite our nation. The cry for freedom has only sport to pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, 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 nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society. We're here on May 31st. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to talking about uh, anger in sports today and um, uh, maybe kind of exploring why it is that uh, we relate to it, how we do as a society, both uh, and on a more personal level. Yes, I uh, um, I think those listening would probably enjoy it more if we were to get more angry on this podcast, but that's not probably who we're going to be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I think there may be some, I don't know about you, but uh, I've had some rather angry moments that we can get into around sports here soon enough. But um, tell me what you've been paying yeah, attention to before we kind of dig into that. So I think uh, a couple things stood out to me this week. One was that Tom Brady is really not that good at golf. And there was something incredibly enjoyable about watching this kind of like paragon of athleticism and competitiveness and achievement and success uh, struggle so much on the golf course, Uh, going as far as to rip his pants in a celebration for a good shot. Um, so all things Tom Brady in what was called the match, which is a pretty obnoxious name of, uh, Tom Brady and Phil Mickelson versus Peyton Manning and Tiger Woods, uh, in an attempt to raise some money, which there were a few things besides Tom Brady not being good that kind of stood out about the match. Um, I think it's really incredible that they raised 20 million dollars that seems just like uh, an incredible amount of money to raise in just a few Mm -hmm. hours um so the amount of wealth that surrounded it was both like it was like okay it's it's possible to raise money in this world and then looking in a little bit closer and saying how are we raising that money it gets a little icky um and it's that like kind of tricky part of um what do we do with the fact that in order to raise that kind of money for a cause uh, necessitates so much wealth uh, on the front end? Mm. Uh, for example, uh, there were like bets being made by like Charles Barkley and Brooks Kepka that were like hundreds of thousands of dollars of bets. And granted, it was for a good cause, but it also comes with the question of like, well, you can just throw around hundreds of thousands of dollars in a joke. Uh, so, like, one was Brooks Kepka tweeted, I'll donate $100,000 if Tom Brady makes a par. So, that's funny, but it's also like, whoa, that's that's kind of crazy. Um, and then just the, like, the, the uh, they were playing at Medalist Golf Club in Jupiter, Florida, which is where Tiger Woods and Justin Thomas and a whole bunch of other pros are members. Uh, and it's like this exceptionally elite place. Um, you only get invited to be a member. Um, and, and so that sort of elitism and exceptionalism and the overall wealth of the whole thing was 
pretty disgusting, uh, honestly, to kind of watch. But then having it be paired with a good cause was weird. Uh, but then the last thing that stood out to me is, and I, I've struggled to put words to it, but how out of touch Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods appear hmm. and come across. And I don't want to be too hard on them because they're humans and they're living their lives as best they can, I think. And I want to give them a benefit of the doubt just as a humanist. Uh, but I find both of them to be kind of harmful characters in, in a large scope in the sense that I kind of can maybe put some, uh, I don't know, more dramatic cues around it in the sense that like they seem to have been living in a bubble for so long that they've arrived at that place that like few other celebrities have arrived at. And I'm thinking of like Michael Jackson, um, I think Michael Jordan lives there too, but it's just this kind of out of touchness that like makes me sad. Mm. Um, it doesn't even make me like dislike them. I just kind of maybe feel bad for them in a way. Um, but then it, I can get frustrated in the sense of thinking of like how lauded Phil Mickelson is and how I can see someone that seems just not all that awesome to me uh, as an export for society and that society seemingly has kind of created him. But then that removes me too much and like makes him seem like this thing that's not a human. So it's all, it's this odd space that's really uncomfortable. Mm. Um, so I, that's as best I can do to kind of talk about it. But he just seemed really out of touch. Well, and it's, I think that's particularly interesting to me in light of this, what's happening this week, uh, in terms of the fact that he should be in jail or maybe not still in jail, but should have spent some time in jail for yeah. his actions. And that just seems to have been totally glossed over at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I'm always, I, I don't know if you ever watched 30 rock, but, yeah. um, you know, I just think about, we all live in bubbles of certain kinds and, you know, I particularly appreciated 30 Rock's input on the attractiveness bubble. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's it's particularly there for professional athletes, but I think we're all prone to it. And so, I, you know, in some ways, um, there's a small part of me that hopes that when we see someone that's so far in the bubble that we uh, – that it encourages us to look at our own bubble, but I'm not hopeful that that's what would ever happen in a situation like this mm-hmm. stupid charity match. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it, so. It's that it is that bubble piece of uh, to maintain a bubble necessitates a lack of self reflection mm-hmm. uh, or self awareness, and so it, it's the way in which individuals like phil mickelson that do live in such a a weird existence um just say all these things that cue a listener that they just aren't doubting anything they're saying and that that's what feels uncomfortable to me i think Mm -hmm. yeah well i think that that's uh, it's to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt and i think uh, I think it should make us uncomfortable just to say, you know, society made them this way. That, um, But I do think that there's an element of that. And I think about that, you know, I think Roger Federer is close to the top of the list in this regard of terms of people that probably know that they live in a bubble, but also choose to do so because of the benefits that they achieve from that. Um, mm-hmm. Because I do think that there's something just 
like if you were to be Roger Federer or Phil Mickelson and take a moment to actually analyze what value you have produced in the world or mm-hmm. uh, what uh, what your life has meant, uh, I think that it can become a super uh, depressing place. Like how many of my relationships are real relationships? How many of much of what I've done has been something that uh, will be of positive impact years from now. And so you have to, in some ways, I think to be the athlete that we want them to be, create that, Mm -hmm. that system and that bubble that allows them to have that sense of certainty. And so like, I, you know, I think there are folks that don't understand it. I think for me, Roger Federer stands out because I think he's a super smart dude um, mm-hmm. and that he probably knows that he's constructed that bubble, but he's perfectly willing to live in it anyway. Um, right. Um, so anyway. I, well, that, that, seem, that seems a particular relevant example in that Forbes just published the mm-hmm. wealthiest athletes and mm-hmm. uh, he overtook Lionel Messi. Uh, I think he made $105 million last year. Which is staggering. Yeah. Uh, Even more staggering is that he made $6 million playing tennis. Well, and particularly staggering given that you could argue that he is two, three years past his peak, if not more. uh, Yeah. And he's making more money. Yeah, he's 38. Yeah, that that was this is I'm spending too much time thinking talking and thinking about this, but it was also the age piece of what I was watching and Roger Federer falls in that conversation too of um it, I mean Roger Federer is our generation, but yeah, he still appears older and I I I think that would be interesting to unpack like why that is and then I think there was also just this piece of like Phil Mickelson and Tiger are like they felt dadish, right? Like just like uh, appealing to old men only and not caring that they're appealing to old men only, kind of thing. Well, and I, it's interesting to me because I I have kind of mixed feelings about the whole thing. Um, I didn't watch any of it live, uh, and I've watched some of it afterwards. But um, I'm intrigued by the kind of focus uh and the or and or lack of focus and the lack of professionalism of it all Mm -hmm. um and the potential for that to be a positive is interesting to me Mm, yeah um like uh so to see someone like tom brady just kind of suck it up um is potentially really good for sports to like limit the importance of some of these things and yet um i know that as soon as the golf tournament comes back on uh it's going to be this super serious muted tones right how much better would it be for society or the world if we uh had charles barkley talking into the ear of all the competitors (laughs) all the time right yeah it, it contrasted too with the other match that was played between Rory uh, McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, Ricky Fowler, and I forgot his name, uh, the new guy out of Oklahoma State. Uh, they carried their own bags, so not having caddies kind of hmm. took away a little bit of that sheen of the seriousness of it all. And they were kind of joking with each other, but it wasn't as contrived as the joking was in uh, the Tiger Woods match. 
And it kind of alighted me to what I have always felt and thought and others think this too of like exactly what you're saying. Like there's space for exhibition uh, in sports that's not fully being realized, I think, um, in that maybe there's a whole lot of potential goodness uh, in a little bit more exhibition style uh, competition. Well, I, I've been watching a lot of disc golf stuff still i don't know why i'm mm -hmm. still on the disc golf stuff at the moment yeah. but um you know they're shut down as well but it's been interesting to watch some of like so paul Macbeth is widely considered the best player perhaps ever certainly right now um got to the highest rating uh anyone has ever gotten to in disc golf 1060 um and uh it's been interesting because he's been doing a bunch of like kind of gimmicky things he you know he's there's a company yeah ironically he lives like 45 minutes from me but um yeah. uh there's a company in lynchburg which is about an hour away that he's invested some money in and so he's done some social media videos with these two kind of schmoes that run the shop i, I say mm -hmm. schmoes because they're not nearly as good as he is but yeah. what's been interesting has been what it's like to watch someone like him who like he shot two 18 under rounds in the past uh, couple of years, which is of course just phenomenal, like right. un unbelievable. And most people didn't think it'd ever be accomplished, but anyway, he, uh, um, to see him play in this casual context where he's making bad shots all the time because mm -hmm. he's not dialed in and it just makes him feel so much more human. It makes me want to take up the sport mm -hmm. much more because I don't, I don't see just the perfection. I see, you know, he's still making these incredible shots, but he's also like, when he's like, oh, I hit that tree, oh, damn. I don't care because right, it doesn't right. really matter right now. But um, right. like to see that them these incredible competitors t strip away some of the competitive aspect has been fun. Right. Yeah, that sounds really fun. And disc golf is a, a, a sport that I, like, I feel like it could be exploited further, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like there's space for it where it to get attention and um, – <laughs> Not just notoriety, but I literally just attention from those that have the ability to export it out. Um, there's a lot there. It's a wonderful game. Yeah, and it's, you know, you think about, uh, I think you and I love these games that are complex, like where there's mm -hmm. lots of strategy. And you talk about disc golf has got as much, uh, if not mm -hmm. more strategy than a real golf match has mm -hmm. in it. I mean, you've got... Yeah you know, three times as many clubs potentially to choose from and you can throw them in a bunch of different ways. So, mm -hmm. um, anyway, I know yeah. I've offended you by now mentioning something as being as difficult as golf is, but, um, you know, <laughs> no, I, I agree. I'm with you. Yeah, no, we're, we're on the same page on that one. I, it, it's also to the, this is maybe the last, I'm sorry, I'm spending so much time on this, but, uh, the part of, golf that you can change the format and it changes the nature of the game and how you play it uh, i've always thought it would be really fun to watch a match play disc golf round uh with like two of the best players in the world playing a match play version which i'm that might exist i've just never seen it hmm. um but insofar as it's what you're talking about is like uh, what's cool about match play is that your strategy changes uh, based on what your opponent's mm -hmm. doing, where normally in golf everyone's just playing the same course, and it's very rare that you would change your strategy based on uh, what someone else is doing. 
Yeah, there's uh, in the disc golf world, there's a couple tournaments that they'll run skins games before. Oh, um, cool. And it's just, it's a lot of fun because they, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're running things from 150 feet, you know, mm-hmm. just like you're trying to chip it in on a golf course when you would mm-hmm. never be trying to do that right. in a normal stroke play event. Um, right. So, yeah. Well, what about you? What were you paying attention to? You know, there I found myself struggling as I was making my notes yesterday and today. Um, you know, there's a bunch of stuff for um, these leagues coming back. It's, you know, baseball seems to be in shambles. Basketball seems to have gotten a plan figured out. Premier League's got a date set to come back. But all I could really pay attention to these past few days has been the response to the uh tragic activities of police brutality across the country and so uh looking at how athletes have responded and stood up but particularly looking at the the symmetry to Colin Kaepernick's uh, taking a knee and this asshole in um Minneapolis killing somebody with his knee um mm-hmm. uh and then the conversations about what kind of, of forms of protest are acceptable when he still stands as this incredible uh, person who stood out uh, in a way that was exactly the way that you could have wanted, but also was then shouted down and what the meaning mm-hmm. of that is. And so all of this has been at the foremost of my mind, along with my own uh, inability to figure out how to respond appropriately and what I should be doing. Mm-hmm. I think I, I, I'll admit somewhat ignorance of how athletes were responding. I was m- probably just paying attention to the fact that there were headlines that athletes were responding. And I don't know, did, were there any that stood out to you that uh, you saw that were inspiring or uh, emblematic of how we should be responding or at least just intriguing for how responses have changed something along those lines? Well, I think that there's, and I think we're seeing this kind of universally with this, which I, fingers crossed it remains kind of the case, is that uh, I will say that I'm seeing more folks than I have seen in past speak up, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, I have to confess my own problems with this and that I don't say anything on social media when this stuff comes up. And I don't, largely that is undefensible, but it's also, I just don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And also... uh, given some of the stuff, what I will say about Zuckerberg that's come out this week and about how his, he's going to refuse to police speech on Facebook. I am very reluctant to post anything on his platform at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, what I will say is that there seems to be a universality to the response to this particular outbreak of this violence. Um, even though we know it's been going on the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I've, I'm particularly captivated because, by the athletes I know best. And so the one that has stood out to me has been Malcolm Brogdon, um, Mm -hmm. who has always been someone that I have been like, that guy seems to know what's going on. Um, Mm -hmm. And so he was out leading some stuff in Indiana, um, you know, speaking and being at the forefront of the the marches through town, which I think is uh, uh, really compelling. And, uh, you know, when I first saw this picture of him walking with the folks, it's kind of shocking in some ways to think of a, an NBA athlete or a professional athlete of that kind of caliber of any kind walking in the midst of a normal protest mm-hmm. through town. Um, 
So uh, that kind of just stood out to me. And, and But there have been, of course, numbers of folks that have come out and, and made statements at this point. But uh, it's just uh, it more and more puts paid to this argument that athletes just need to shut up and play the game. Right. Yeah, Marcus Brogdon is a great example. Ma- Malcolm uh, now, Malcolm. Don't don't be offensive here, Kyle. Oh, I'm sorry. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> you UK people always trying to downplay us as the reigning national champions still, you know. <laughs> <laughs> a, a UK person, like, I, I don't think I could name three players on the last three teams at UK. Um and and yet they're all probably like <laughs> starters in the NBA. <laughs> um, yeah, he has. He has always set himself apart. And I I would I would very willingly excuse you of any favoritism. I, I think he stands out on his own. It's not just that he's a UVA guy. Uh, um, it, it has me thinking about exposure and how how often their exposure has to be so micromanaged mm. and how even the thought of like going onto a court is where one exposes themselves if they're a professional basketball player and how how much potential power there is in changing the dynamics of exposure um but also how fraught it is with complexity and mm-hmm. difficulty to change the nature of how one exposes themselves uh to other individuals or a community well, you know, we talked about this a long time ago about um, the asshole whose name is Cristiano Ronaldo, who mm-hmm. um, uh, remains and has always been one of my least favorite players. Um, he is my LeBron of soccer. So, if you, if that, those of you that know the podcast will understand that reference. Um, <laughs> uh, but we talked about him with this um, uh, this woman who's accused him of rape. Um, and the reality is that in the court system where he is, that it was impossible for them to prosecute that because they couldn't get close enough to him to serve him with the papers that would be needed to serve mm-hmm. him with a civil uh, complaint, right. which is absurd that, that's, that that can be the case. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I I had this thought, too, the other day when I was watching some uh, Roger Federer's social media stuff. And he's kind of like posting these trick shot challenges and the ones that are performed outside of his house, his house looks like a military compound. Mm. Uh, It is staggering both for its size and its modern architecture. And it's, it's seemingly like up on a mountain. I I could be ignorant of it. He might not have even been at home, but wherever he was (laughs) looked like this, like, um, yeah, postmodern architectural castle it was uh incredible just to think about existing in that type of space every day yeah yeah well and they all have these teams and and so i think there is something to be said there that um you know uh malcolm brogdon perhaps has um a freedom in not being uh an all-star although he came very close to being an all-star this Mm -hmm. year um in that, uh, you know, there's, it's much easier for him to go out and do that than it is for Kyrie Irving right. to go out and do that. Um, but at the same time, there's still a, a huge amount of credit, I think, that has to be go out um, 
for that. And I, you know, I, I'll give a lot of credit too for seeing folks that, um, these athletes that I follow on social media that have never posted anything political before finally saying something. Um, so I don't, uh, you know, it's not, uh, I worry about what we're doing on social media in terms of this activism, but it does seem to be doing something at this point. So I, uh, have to give them credit for doing so. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, that's been what's captivating my mind. But um, did you get a chance to watch Lance last week? I did. So maybe as somewhat of a segue, I was going to share that uh, I did watch that documentary. And as as far as it's related to political activism, it, it popped in my, my mind that there was a point in time when Lance Armstrong was considering running for office. And I thought about this week, that this week, but did not follow up to go research research it. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering if you remember that. I vaguely, but I yeah, yeah, oof. yeah. What, a, what a strange. In some ways, it makes perfect sense. I mean, the folks that we see in political office with his personality seems to be a perfect match. Well, ways. right, that might be kind of a good introduction into like what is kind of a main topic for this week, which is that. Uh, there is a certain mindset and approach and emotional tenor that is really effective, not just in sports, but um, mm-hmm. in Western society. Um, and so I, I was kind of toying with what to call that, and we can maybe get into that a little bit more. But uh, you wanted to talk about anger this week. What was it that kind of made you want to talk about anger in sports? Well, it, it came from the Lance thing, and I think it, it builds off the Jordan stuff. But, um, you know, the particular moment that I thought I wanted to talk about this was when, um, you know, we we heard and we talked a little bit about Jordan making up these reasons to be angry. So, like, there's this story about him going off on this guy for the Wizards or the Bullets. I forget what they were at that point. Um mm-hmm. And uh turns out the whole thing was false. The guy wished him a good game, never said any of the stuff that um, Jordan claimed it was that got him fired up. Uh, and that was all a story that Jordan created in his own mind to give himself the motivation and the anger. Uh, and here Lance talked the same way about building up in his own mind these fake rivalries or fake animosities. Um, and it just seems so unhealthy to have this kind of manufactured anger. And it really made me think about what what we have to do to be a professional athlete in terms of managing anger. Both, it seems like, perhaps cultivating it or at least refusing to get over it um, versus, uh, you know, being a healthy person who can uh, grieve and... and experience emotions but also move on from them uh it's i don't know quite what to think about it but i'm hopeful that we can have professional athletes without that level of anger but it seems to be something that uh is rather high level uh universal at this point yeah so i I think that's really well said and uh i think my way into it is um aided by a writer, Aaron Timms. I don't know if you saw his review of the documentary Mm -mm. uh, in The Guardian. Uh, He had just recently uh, put, he's a freelance journalist, and he had also written for The Guardian about uh, The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. 
And uh, the main point he was making is that there's such a crossover between the two. And he made this, um, he made the point really nicely with saying that, like, the difference is uh, Lance used drugs and so essentially uh, cheated. But even that cheating, right, is like complex. But nonetheless, like, what the two of them have in common is that they were capable of feeling immense anger, sustaining that anger. Uh, living on that anger and then com- competing at a higher level because of that anger. And in many cases, I, th- I think like most of us would agree that living that way is unhealthy, that it's not good. And by however one would define happiness uh, and define contentment or define health, uh, we would probably all say that that's not a good recipe for arriving at a healthy way to live. Uh, And then to extend that to say that, like, what do we want to teach young people about how to be in the world or how to be in communities or how to be in relationships? We would say, don't do what Lance Armstrong and Michael Jordan did. Yet, what is so absolutely just astonishing is, is how uh, when an athlete does it and achieves like they achieve, they become our models. Um, and not just like people we admire, like they're two of the most seminal, salient, powerful, uh, models that I think like the 20th century has seen. Uh, and so in that way, like not only are we like being like, wow, that was really good. We're saying like, these are the greatest of all time, right? (laughs) We're seeing like the most unhealthy amongst us are the greatest. And so that makes it like such a significant conversation for me. Um, and, and I guess the question becomes like, how does that happen? How do we get there? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that there's, um, it's, we should mention here that it's, this is, as you said, far beyond sports. And so I think that even though there are those that, um, you know, might say, you know, this is unhealthy in a sports context, whatever. It's the same thing we see in the corporate world. It's the same thing we see uh, in, you know, individuals' everyday lives. How many folks have we seen uh, erupt in anger at a uh, at a church league softball game? Um, mm-hmm. It's It's pervasive, and it's largely, I think, because we see that those folks at the top feel that way. And it's, uh, I think it's important that these are the two paragons, but we see this everywhere. I mean, um, you know, uh, Tom Brady, how angry do we see him on the sidelines? Peyton Manning was furious all the time. These, these golfers that we admire are always mad with themselves or with someone else when they're on the course. Um, it's, uh, we just, I can't picture, you know, even someone, um, you know, the part of the reasons I always loved the Warriors was because they looked like they were having fun on mm-hmm. the court. And yet I don't mm-hmm. even know whether I can believe that. I have to think that there's some level of uh, frustration and anger that drives even them. And I don't know how mm-hmm. to feel about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of Steve Kerr in the documentary uh, claiming to be as competitive as Michael mm-hmm. Jordan. Uh, I think of the trouble or at least commotion that Draymond Green causes mm-hmm. uh, on that team or is at the center of a catalyst of, I don't want to say he's the pure cause of it, but yeah. Um, 
I was going to say something else on that, and I kind of lost my train of thought. But um, I, I guess it, it, it's that piece you're pointing to that uh, we can find evidence of it everywhere, uh, which is so troubling. But I, I guess I'm stating the obvious for the benefit that comes with just stating the obvious is uh, I, I think what we see in as a society lauds that type of anger and seemingly admires it as it plays out, not just on uh, in sports, but we see it in the economy and we see it in government as well, that as if we needed any more evidence that we live in a patriarchal society, right? Like I, I, that's like, I guess like one of my number one takeaways is that really what we see is uh, what the patriarchy values and what the patriarchy values is being brash, being insensitive, taking a gift and fueling it with aggressiveness and anger and dominating competition. Um, so a real primal, uh, unabashed, unapologetic dominance. Um, and so I, I, that's the part where I... I think you and I have in common is so troubling about watching professional sports is that underlying all of it is a truth that if one does does those things better than the rest, then they are going to be called the greatest of all time and they're going to be this emblem uh, of how to be in the world. And you and I like <laughs> really disagree with that. Um, but at the same time, are really compelled and moved by uh, competitive achievement in the midst of competition. Is that fair to say? It is. Yeah, it's, and I think this is the big part that I took away from the Jordan thing that I still haven't quite figured out how to articulate to myself is that Jordan. When I watch Jordan play basketball, it's the kind of basketball that I want to watch, and yet to get there requires something that I find incredibly distasteful. So how do I uh, overcome that? And do I just need to give up this sport if it's if that's what it's leading to, is that kind of uh, unhealthy behavior in a few? And, you know, it, it takes me back to, you know, the reasons that I'm boycotting football are because of these inherent reasons that make it bad for society. And is it true that all of these other sports are doing the same thing and what does that mean for my ability to ever really enjoy uh sports well and so that for me connects to a, a, another thing i think you and i both often think about is like when i ask the question like why is this a significant conversation why should we be having it it's because uh so many kids play sports and some of them do it because they want to, some do it because they like, are, think that's what you're supposed to do, especially in American society. But nonetheless, a, a huge swath of society has a connection with sports uh, as a kid. And so in that way, it becomes really, really important if we think about what kind of communities we want to create and we want to live in uh, to kind of really dig in and inspect like what messages these kids are receiving um, and so in the particular example of anger, I, I think it would be fair to say that anyone that competes as a child in any sporting activity, it is a guarantee that you're going to experience anger. Uh, and the emotions connected with it, uh, frustration, disappointment, uh, even rage, um, in, in my very emotionally repressed and suppressed life, <laughs> 
uh, I think the only places I have allowed myself to experience rage uh, have been in sports. Um, so it's where we often experience the kind of like extremes of human emotion. Uh, and yet we're experiencing these extremes and we like we need a lot of help and we need to be taught what to do when we're experiencing them. And if the only models we have are Michael Jordan and Lance Armstrong, that makes me really nervous. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes me really sad and um, it makes me disappointed and it makes me angry and it makes me frustrated. <laughs> um, so I, I, I don't know. I, when you think about anger and sports and how it translates to youth, what sort of things come to mind for you? Well, I think about my own experience and i think it's it's also important here to make this point that this is not just this anger is not just on the playing perspective i think we see it all the time in the fandom side as yeah. well i mean uh, you know we've seen it clearly in you know fights around games and things like that but uh, i think there's just a simmering i think this is part of what makes soccer hooliganism a thing um mm -hmm. that uh, particularly in soccer that it's so easy to feel unjustly punished um and so you know a penalty kick is always a subjective decision so if you lose that game on a penalty kick and how angry people can get about that um it's it's just staggering but i also think about you know how many weekends i had ruined growing up either because my team lost or because you know my ymca basketball game i didn't perform in the way that I wanted to. And I think that was kind of the way that it always came out for me. I rarely, if ever would get mad at another team, but I was almost always mad at myself for not performing to the level that I thought I should be performing to. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was never like I'm mad at this other person. It was, I'm mad at myself. How could I be losing this game? Why, why have I missed four shots in a row? What is, how do I slice the ball every time I take it off the tee? Um, and to the point where in college, I, um, you know, I did not do much work when I was in college. Um, mm -hmm. I went to a wonderful school, but uh, I was lucky enough not to have to work very hard. So I wound up quitting playing pickup basketball because I found that I couldn't, it was unhealthy for me to be frustrated and angry at two sports at the same time because I cared about ultimate and enjoyed that. And I, basketball was just this other thing that we did, but it would still make me angry and not be as good as I thought I should be. Um, mm -hmm. so I eventually just stopped playing and it's was one of the best decisions I made, uh, in college, if I'm being honest. So, right. Right. Yeah. I, I can relate to so much of that. And when I look back on my youth experience in sports, I think the, the message I got, both directly and indirectly, um, or maybe better explicitly and implicitly was to harness anger uh, was the message I got. So I, I, I'm sure I actually heard that phrase at points in my life that like take this anger and use it and take it out on the field or take it out on the mm -hmm. ball. It's kind of like this tropish way of talking through it. And I guess what stands out to me amongst all the other messages I got about anger as a child um, that maybe weren't all that helpful, especially in a sports com context, was um the lack of emotional literacy mm -hmm. uh, amongst myself and my coaches and my teachers and those that were mentors around me. Um, 
And so I, I think the emotional literacy piece has been really standing out to me recently, and partly is because uh, McKay and I came across uh, Mark Brackett, who's a researcher at Yale University, and uh, he is running a program that is seeking to implement emotional literacy programs into schools. And while it's mostly classroom-based, and I haven't read the book fully yet, um, but it, it seems that there's a, there's a massive amount of space for applying emotional literacy programs in coaching and mentoring and youth sports. Hmm. And what also is paired with it for me recently was Michael Lewis's podcast on coaching, uh, season two of Against the Rules. And there are I still want to talk about this more <laughs> fully at some point if if we can get an opportunity to, um, because so much of it has surprised me. And what has surprised me is his take on it all hmm. is in I I am somewhat, uh, I guess, shocked by how he has talked. He is talking about coaching in sports in particular. He's looking at coaching and society kind of at large. But um, he 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 seemingly accepts the kind of just like old school, rough, tough character building coach construct. Um, and he goes as far as to even, uh, he interviews his daughter on one of the more recent episodes and she's playing softball and wanting to get a college scholarship and her summer league travel team coach is that kind of like hard nosed, tough coach. Uh, and he actually like put a microphone on her during a game. And so she's like cussing at the players and at the umpire and just to herself and just really hard and tough. And it's causing his daughter like extreme anxiety. And so he sends her to a sports psychologist. Uh, and from the sports psychologist, she's getting all these other messages. And these other messages are emotional literacy. Hmm. What the sports psychologist teaches her essentially is a mantra and how to go about getting herself from anger, frustration, anxiety, disappointment to this calm space where she can perform better. Um, and so within all the context of that, I think just the ultimate takeaway is that if Michael Lewis, um, so, someone I thought would be in a different place on it is not, uh, even in light of like sending his daughter to a sports psychologist, I, I don't know. I, I it's just, we maybe just have a really far way to go. And I, I, I'm interested in what examples are out there of people that are spending a lot of time on teaching coaches on how to teach kids about what to do with their emotions. You know, it is. Um, so two thoughts about that one. Um, it really makes me appreciate Tony Bennett even more. I know I'm back on the UVA train here, but, um, the way he handled losing in that first round game, uh, mm -hmm, and the mm -hmm. like resiliency I think he was able to build into those kids, those young men, uh, is just kind of incredible. Like putting basketball in perspective in a moment like that, allowing them to feel those emotions, but also helping them like understand and get past it is just what more could you ask from a coach mm -hmm. in a moment like that? Um, but also I do think this raises an interesting question and, um, I'll be a little personal here. Um, you know, in my own counseling days, um, recent and dating back, I've been told that I probably need to widen my range of emotions, um, mm -hmm. which uh, uh, is an interesting thing. Uh, I'm very uncomfortable with that concept. Um, 
but it's an interesting thought that uh, if done right, sports can be a very powerful tool for allowing us to feel a wide range of emotions and cope with them in an appropriate way if we're given the right kind of guidance. And, um, you know, because I think that there's something to be said that perhaps you and I, I, I won't speak for you, but I, I feel like we're in the same place here that we should perhaps be a little more angry than we are sometimes or uh, allow ourselves to feel those things a bit more. Um, and, and perhaps sports can be an outlet if done in a healthy and uh, productive manner. Yeah, I, I think that's really beautiful. I love that. And uh, you even using the phrase um, that you use, the title of Mark Brackett's book is Permission to Feel. Uh, and I think what stands out to me immediately when I hear him talk is how um, – for better or worse, I, I might need to unpack this some more, but sports, as you said, do give us permission to feel or at least give us space to feel mm. is maybe a better way to say it, um, a, a broader range of human emotions and being able to name them as they come up and to find oneself in a nurturing space uh, could be a really valuable thing. Uh, and a re- Not could be, it would be. It would be extremely valuable. Uh, it's the other part of Michael Lewis's podcast, and he said uh, this wasn't what he set out to do in season two, but um, there's a there's a, a predictable story uh, that kind of weaves through uh, the second season, and that is uh, the privileged have access to good coaching, mm-hmm. and those that are not privileged do not have access to good coaching. And that's not just in sports, but life in general. Mm-hmm. And so if we accept that coaching is a really powerful thing in society and we uh, accept that the privileged get it and others do not, then we have an even bigger problem. Um, but gosh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's so true that in my personal experience too uh, in therapy, I've had to like use sports memories to conjure emotions uh, or to like uh, try and uh, elicit those emotions to some extent. Uh, because it was the only space as a child that I thought I had permission to feel hmm. uh, was competing. Um, so, like, for example, on, like, uh, Mark Brackett's, he has a mood meter, which is an XY axis. And so the four quadrants are four moods. Um, and at the top of the axis on the left is high energy, um, unpleasant. So that would be like where angry lives. Mm-hmm. And in the right is pleasant high energy. And so that would be like ecstatic, like you just want a championship uh, or you just want a game. Uh, and then the bottom is low energy. So on the left would be like depression, sadness, um, sullen, those sorts of things. And then on the bottom right is low energy but high pleasantness. Uh, so like serene, um, cozy, grateful, that sort of thing. And so just I I think of like um, how powerful it would be to like end a practice and have a coach say, where are you? Point to where you are on this meter and let's talk about like what got you there uh, and let's strategize what to do with these emotions now that you're there. Which takes me right back to Phil Jackson in some ways. Yes, that's Um, where I thought, yeah. uh, And like his yoga practice in there and how much of that, how much of Jordan being successful was – was uh, um, Phil giving him the capacity to 
live in that anger, perhaps unproductively, but also use it in a productive manner. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And how that contrasts with Bobby Knight throwing chairs across the court. Right. Hmm. Yeah. It is. I think I come back to in the end of the day, like, I think there can be some really powerful forces for good here, but the problem remains that the folks at the top, those examples we have, mm-hmm. are A, they're not explicated very well. So we don't see the vulnerable side of Jordan and Lance because they won't let us, but also we don't have access to that. Mm-hmm. Um, if they have it, and I presume Yeah, I don't know do. if they have access to it. <laughs> they, but they may not, like, go there but you know that they're they have points of vulnerability i mean we saw that with jordan's dad stuff right um, right right um and so you know which by the way lance's stuff lance's stepdad getting on there yeah. good grief talk about tone deaf my word yeah um, yeah uh anyway um but I think that that's that's where the issue arises for me is that we're showing these examples of anger being the way um, and yet we're not talking about the full scope of these things and we're not showing other examples of folks. We're not, I mean, you know, um, perhaps Obama needs to be, uh, a moderator of some, or an example of this in some ways, that ability to, I'm sure Obama went from extremes of anger to other feelings, but his ability to stay in a place of productiveness throughout it, mm-hmm. um, should perhaps be what we look to for that. And yet uh, we've seen how divisive his example is uh, and you makes you wonder how much of it, uh, how much would we feel, would the right feel different about Obama if he had fed into their angry uh, black man narrative that they would have liked to have seen him in. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that opens up that whole space of who gets to feel what, mm-hmm. uh, and if the policies are being inscribed even subtly by those that value anger and belligerence and brashness, uh, then it's even harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Our president is so helpful in having this conversation. So, you know. Gosh. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. Well, let's. Uh, uh, you got anything else on this? I was trying to think of a happy way to end it. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering. I, I'm. I'm thinking of someone like Brogdon. Um, mm. Does Brogdon play with anger? Does Brogdon want to be Michael Jordan? Does he want to be Kobe Bryant, or does he just want to be a successful basketball player? That you know. Um, so I, how. To, to what extent um, are there athletes out there that are um, at least to some extent actively rejecting what I would call the Michael Jordan myth? Well, and I think there's there's an additional question there in some ways that um, uh, so Brogdon is a fascinating example. You know, the guy's got a master's degree. He started a non NGO at this point around uh, water access. Um, uh, there seem to be a lot of indications he'll run for public office at some point. Um, uh, but what stands out in all of that to me is that this person, this individual, has put basketball in the appropriate place in their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it makes me wonder if there's a 
argument to be made for sports as anger relief almost um Mm -hmm. a place where you know you can release that anger in a productive space and use it uh, while also uh, preventing it from bubbling over in other places in your life um Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, because I, I think we've all felt that playing sports can also be a great way to get out energy and like you feel a little bit spent when you're done after mm-hmm. a competitive match. And perhaps that's a productive way. And so it makes me wonder if someone like Brogdon, who's clearly uh, has things to feel angry about in his everyday life or in his sports world, um, uses the basketball arena as an acceptable way to let mm-hmm. loose those feelings in a way that they don't then let loose in other places. Right. And learning the difference between a toxic embodiment of it or manifestation of it and one that is like useful and healthy for you and those around you. Well, I think it's also about what the appropriate things to be angry about are. Um, mm. So being angry about uh, a black man being killed by a police officer is very much okay. You should feel angry about that. Mm-hmm. Feeling angry because uh, uh, your wife uh, um, didn't do exactly what you wanted her to do so that you beat her is obviously unacceptable. But there's all these levels of gray in between there. I think that there's a feeling in the basketball world and the sports world that it's okay to get angry about sports. And perhaps that what we, perhaps the conversation needs to be it's okay to be angry, it's okay to feel things, but you shouldn't let anger about something insignificant drive you let your anger rest in things that you should feel angry about right yeah so keeping it such that the the outlet for anger is not the source of anger Mm -hmm. exactly yeah i like that we are not psychologists so do not take our word on what is a good use of anger or anything but yeah, maybe not take our word on much of yeah, anything really, at anything. all. If you, yeah. if you want to know about <laughs> upper middle class white person experience, we'll, we'll happily uh, speak yeah. with some conviction about that. But uh, most of everything else, uh, you should take with a massive grain of salt that's bigger <laughs> than anything we're saying. Yeah. You don't even have to ask us for our opinion. We'll just make a podcast for you before you ask <laughs> yeah and, you know i think we're going to start some other podcasts on uh, on politics and yeah. uh, <laughs> i think we should start a feminism podcast on about oh you, yeah that would be great yeah. um, uh, oh geez <laughs> oh oh gosh well i'm good there unless you've got something else to say on it i, I do not i'm sure i've said too much already all right well last week i asked you um, how many KOMs and QOMs, uh, the top amateur athletes in the world have, um, I forget your all's exact guesses, but I think you both were in the hundreds. Uh, Is that right? I think I guessed a thousand. And, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, Keith DeFibre, uh, has 5,100 KOMs and Becky Brain has 3,400, uh, QOMs. Just both really staggering. <laughs> I don't know how one goes about doing that, but it is staggering. Well, I, I Kyle or uh, Sam from last week texted me uh, some of his thoughts about it and shared that um, it's kind of uh, they're gaming the system a little bit, right? So that uh, they, they're setting yeah. up KOMs for place like routes that most people wouldn't think to ride, 
Oh, okay. Um, or things like that. But still, I mean, to have 5,000 of them requires you to have had run over 5,000 distinct places. Um, right, exactly. There's uh, a lot of legwork in that, there's literally. There's still like, a lot of legwork, and you still have other people that can come out and take them at any time. Um, right, right. So it is, it's an interesting world in many ways, but like it is, like, I think the thing that interests me most is why, because I think to do it, you would have had to have gamed the system a little bit. Like, right. you know, here uh, there's a park that I run through all the time and there's a KOM going through the park one way, but there's also a KOM going back through the park the other way. Um, and like one is clearly a more meaningful record than the other is. Right. Um, but you know, like, so who is like going to check that, but also who's like, say, I'm going to add this extra two streets or two blocks on this direction. So I can get a KOM that right. no one's going to take from me, but it goes back to the doping conversation of like, does that really make you feel good at the end of the day or not? Right. Yeah. Those are fascinating things. Yeah. Um, but all right, we're we ready for this week. Yeah. Okay. So to set this up a little bit, this this question was connected to our topic for the week, which was anger. And so I was thinking about what made me angry when I was a kid playing sports, and in particular when I was playing golf. Um, as anyone who's played the game knows, there's infinite opportunity to become really angry. Uh, it is an incredibly trying and frustrating and emotional game, uh, even if you're just out playing by yourself for the fun of it. Um, and so as a kid, I often struggled with what was an appropriate goal as a golfer uh, as far as scoring. Mm. And I would get in arguments with my parents and with my coaches uh, when I would be angry after a round. Uh, and the conversation was always around like, well, what was your goal in this round? And I always struggled with that because there was like an existential question. It was like, what do you mean? What is my goal? My goal was to play the best I possibly could. And I didn't achieve that goal. Like, And so they're like, well, make that shouldn't be your goal. Then I'm like, well, why play? What am I doing if that's not my goal? Like, that not that the goal? Mm -hmm. So that space I, I always struggle with. And I think it was a source of anger for me. So it had me thinking about uh, how to measure success over time in golf. And if you've never been to the PGA Tours st stats page, it's really quite incredible and interesting. Um, and so I was looking at uh, ways to measure success in golf. And I, I think as it relates to doing well in a round, it's how many birdies you make in that round mm -hmm. uh, is a great way to do it. And so I was interested in who had the highest birdie average per round on the PGA Tour in 2019. And what was it? So I'm wondering if you have a guess for that. So one more time, what what is the? Yeah, who had the highest birdie average per round on the PGA Tour in 2019, and what was that average? How many birdies per round do you think they make uh, over the season? Hmm. This is interesting because there's a whole other level of like, there are certain tournaments that are very easy to get birdies at that are often played by the less, uh, yeah, the worst. People, so I'm gonna guess it's not one of like the top folks, and it's also because in my experience, the top folks are usually the ones that get in trouble. Their bogey numbers are the lowest, mm -hmm. as opposed to their birdie numbers are the highest. Um, so I'm gonna guess like lower upper tier, uh, and I'm gonna say Patrick Reed. 
Um, and I'm so that's s- a pretty good guess. Yeah. And I'm going to say uh, eight birdies around. Okay. All right. Those are good guesses. I, I think your logic is sound in a lot of ways too, okay. based on based on the statistics. Yeah, well, we're going to have to come back next week, and and uh, I look forward to hearing if I'm right or not. So, <laughs> all right. We well, got anything else, Kyle? That's all I got. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to uh, Sports and Society this week. Please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this. Um, we will be back next week with more, but stay safe in the meantime. And thanks, Kyle. Thanks, man. To pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, nobody's, calling, nobody, nobody, nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. I was a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan. <laughs>